Parole Podcast is back. Do yourself a favor and follow the podcast if you have not done so. On today's episode, I'm bringing you Bunmi, a Nigerian HR consultant who has experience in working in Nigeria before moving to Canada a couple of years ago. By inviting her in this episode, I wanted to satisfy my curiosity. Why would someone choose to work in the HR department? I know this to be true. It's not easy to deal with human beings. By the way, I did not have the time to go through Bumi's academic experience because she's Niger, meaning she has lots of diplomas. I started a conversation with her with a why in my head. And once finished, I recall thinking, this must be a calling. Also, we talked about Nigerian food, jollof or amala. Amala looks like a Burundian dish. Not sure it tastes the same though, because I don't know. Yamsqua. Mm, we'll see. I got an explanation to the meaning of spraying. <laughs> Good lord. This practice reminds me of something else. And because I am a lady, I will only say this to me more. Add author to her long list of achievements. Yes, she wrote Incredible Courage. This is what she called a motivational book after having experienced what I can only describe as a really difficult time in her life. As you will hear, we talked just a bit about the elections in Nigeria, and as I am ready to publish this episode, it looks like the country might have a winner, Bola Tinubu. Wishing the best for this country, they really deserve the best, and should strive for the best, not only for their sake, but also for the rest of Africa. One million downloads per episode. So here's me asking for your help. Share, share, share. Power Podcast is on all the major podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple, Google, etc. This is me asking to spray me, i.e. digitally, please, on Patreon. Power Podcast via Voice Studios. If you would like to support my podcast, find the link on the show notes. Until next time. Power Podcast is back today in Canada, and it has been a long time since last time. And uh, funny enough, you're going to tell me, but there are so many Can um, Nigerians who live in Canada, because the last one was Canadian as well. And um, yeah, who are you? Thanks for having me, Alex. Uh, my name is Bumia Folabi, and um, I'm an HR professional. Mm -hmm. I currently live in Canada. I moved here about two years ago now, in February, this February would be two years. Okay. I moved. But prior to that, I lived all my life in Nigeria and worked. I've worked across. Uh, my career has kind of like pivoted or evolved three times in okay. my work life. Uh, but I've been in HR now for about eight years. Uh, this is the last iteration, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, this is a bit of a stretch for you to kind of move. I mean, it's not even like you're on the East Coast. You're literally on the West Coast so, so far. And from Lagos or Ibadan, I don't know. I know the regions of the cities or uh, Benin City that I know. So you can tell my Niger in me is coming up. Um, <laughs> how is it like... Tell us what's the difference first, like the first cultural shock, because now you're living there, it's not only traveling, but you're like a resident. Yeah, well, I don't think I had too much of a cultural shock, to be honest, because oh, I'd been okay. coming here quite a lot back and forth because my sons okay. have been here for about seven years before I okay, came in. Yes, yeah, so I'd been, yeah, when I come, I'd stay with them. Sometimes I'd stay a month 
you know, and kind of like, oh, like, okay, yeah, go out with them, learn about Canada from their own eyes. So I think I had kind of like gotten a fair idea of what it was like. But I think for me, the biggest difference is just being in a place where, I mean, good faith operates, let me put it that way. There's a mm. lot of things that sometimes I, I look at things happening and I'm like, you wouldn't dare do this in Nigeria because <laughs> if you did, nobody would do well, not, not nobody, but a large number yeah, of the population would mm. just not do the right thing because there's nobody watching, there's no consequence. You know, mm-hmm. the, one of the one things that kind of like brought that home to me last year was when I went for a particular event and mm-hmm. we finished very late. This was like past midnight. It was, you know, one of the popular events here, the Calgary Stampede. And at that time of the night, of course, everybody came out. We all went to the train station. You can imagine how mm-hmm. full everything was. And people were literally queuing to buy train tickets. I mean, there's nothing, there's no one there monitoring <laughs> who buys a ticket and who doesn't. So if we all entered the train without tickets, I mean, nobody would be any the wiser. Mm. People actually queued and waited in line to buy tickets for the train mm. and did not go into the train until they had their tickets. I was amazed. That's beautiful. It, it looks like th- those are like Swiss people because really? Swiss don't want to be this way here and French are still astonished. So go figure culturally the differences. But it's, it, it is true. And and I think the reason why I really wanted to, to bring you on the podcast is not only because we talk about Africa and, you know, obviously you're an African, but because uh, HR is really, um, <laughs> I was going to say HR and politics are those two sectors of the African uh, leadership or management that are really really hard for me to understand how it operates from city to city, from countries to countries, and even regions to regions. And obviously I'll link, you know, who you are on on the show notes, but I kind of want you to, to introduce you through the eyes of you as an HR professional back in the day when you decided really to follow the, the steps or the, you know, the path, because you have to be I believe in God, so I like to say you have to have a lot of faith to kind of walk through that path, literally. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that. I'm I'm also a faith person or a person of faith, as I like to put it. In terms of amen of that. <laughs> yeah, in terms of my career journey and you know the HR getting into the HR space, I've always enjoyed working with people. I've always enjoyed you know, feeling that I'm helping people to become a better version of themselves or to maximize their potential. So I started my career more or less in IT training. Then I went into business, mm-hmm. uh, into a fam- started running a family business. And then it was while we were running the family business that, you know, I obviously, because it was a small business, we didn't have all the departments. So when we started growing mm. and, you know, headcount started growing, we needed someone to actually focus on HR. But then again, we couldn't really afford that. So, you know, I'm like, I mean, this is something I, I can do, you know. I'm the kind of person that would put up her hand, mm. you know, to do something. I mean, just do it afraid, irrespective. And that's how I decided to go into, you know, HR, started learning about it, started asking people that I knew that were in the field, how do you do this? You know, what do you do to retain staff? What do you do to attract staff? 
you know, what do you do? What mm. policies do you put in place to ensure that your work environment, you know, is conducive for employees and all that? And, you know, that was how I got into it. I had to learn to create policies to, you know, define our strategies as far as human capital was concerned. So that's how I got into it. And from then on, I, it just became something that I really, you know, fell in love with because I felt that, I was actually helping because HR, in a sense, stands in between the employer and the employee. We are kind of the ones that enable both parties to find value in that employment relationship. So being able to do that, being in a position to largely influence that was very fulfilling for me. And when the decision was made to relocate, I mean, it was a no-brainer that I was going to continue in that line. I know that for us, for example, if I were to speak about for Burundi, is that HR, you'll have to deal with two two ethnicities, I guess uh, you can say so. But Nigeria, it's, there's a bunch of people, <laughs> a bunch of backgrounds. How do you deal with people first? Because obviously being you being in the middle means that you have to take, I was going to say, you know, really big the billionaire is not really an easy job. So you have to be that person who is a person of peace somehow, a person of trust. And with my African Burundian background, I will assume that depending on who's speaking to you, you have to say, uh, you have to speak a certain way. Um, obviously, if it's the CEO or the, the person who's opening the door, whatever. What is your, I would like to say, to serve is great, but how do you even speak to your people, to Nigerian people or foreigners? There could be Ivorians or Senegalese there to make you feel heard and really understood and respected, I guess, at this point. Yeah, that's a great question. First of all, yes, Nigeria is quite diverse, but I think for us, literally, we have three main ethnic groups, so to say. I mean, within okay. each of the groups, yes, mm -hmm. you have subgroups that are as many as you can count, but mainly it can be divided into three. So we have the Northern Houses, the Western Yorubas, and then the Eastern Igbos. That's kind of like the three big buckets in terms mm -hmm. of ethnicities. I think because I grew up in Lagos and lived in Lagos all my life, Lagos is the commercial capital. It was the administrative capital for many years before Abuja was created and Lagos just became the commercial capital. I have interacted with people of all three ethnicities, both from school, secondary school. I had friends who you know, were from all, all three ethnicities. I had in university too, it was the same. I mean, I was exposed to even more. So coming into the workplace and having to deal with the three was not too difficult from that perspective because I already kind of like understood, I mean, their general, um, how do you call it now? Um, you know, generalizations you can make about each each tribe and you know, we're, course, <laughs> we're all aware yeah. of that and we try to ensure that <laughs> that doesn't influence or impact the way you deal with mm. them. Because one of the first things that I, I told myself, you know, coming into the workplace is that everybody's different. I don't like to be typified. I don't like you, know, you making a generalization about me. So I strive not to do the same about other people. You know, being willing to listen and talking about, you know, to answer your other question about how do you ensure that people are heard? I think, first of all, it's about being willing to listen. So if someone has an issue or wants to discuss something or, you know, there's just something going on, be 
don't be ready to just jump in and prefer a solution without even hearing the person out. So, you know, being willing to listen, being willing to dig deeper into, you know, to go beyond the surface in terms of what is happening, asking clarifying questions, asking probing questions if need be. And of course, sometimes people are not comfortable. You have to respect that. But as much as they're comfortable, you know, you try to dig to understand the root of the issues. Because sometimes when someone comes to speak to you, they talk about, you know, the symptoms, they talk about the outcomes. But there could be quite Mm -hmm. a number of things that have happened between the root and the outcome. So if you don't understand where this is coming from, you could misinterpret what the person is saying or what the person is feeling. So once you are able to listen, you then, mm-hmm. of course, need to empathize. Sometimes you can relate. Maybe it might be something you've gone through yourself, you know, in your personal life, and that can help you to relate. Other times you may not necessarily relate, but you can try to empathize and, you know, try and put yourself in the other person's position. If need be, sometimes as well, you can speak to other people who might have a better view or better knowledge of the situation to ask. I have the situation on hand. You know, what do you think? How would you deal with it? What kind of advice can you give me in terms of handling it? So I think once you're open, you know, as an HR person to listen and to try and be empathetic with whoever it is or whatever the situation is, having that problem solving mindset to look for a solution, you know, okay, so we have this on ground. What are the possible solutions? And not limiting yourself to just one particular way, you know, being breaking the box, so to say, and just trying to find innovative solutions, solutions that may not necessarily be the usual thing because everybody's situation is different. While there may be generalities in terms of what we can do for any particular uh, sex scenario, there may be nuances in that situation that require you to go you know, outside of the typical. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's kind of like been the principle that I've worked on, and I think it's it's helped me over the years in terms of, you know, the, the job that I do. Before before I go on my next question, I want, you said something about innovation and problem solving. I'll put my African hat again. And I, I see that Africans, especially Burundians, I will assume other, other countries as well, but in different ways, we tend to be taught by elders not to speak up. <laughs> and this is... You know, this is, it is what it is, good or bad, it's part of our culture. I would assume that there's a good part of it, obviously. But I understand that if you have not been to a private school, for example, and it was my case, I'm so grateful that, you know, my parents put me through there, is to say, for example, if you have a question, you can ask. If you want to add something, you can add. If you want to say something, you know, just, you know, I don't know, just to to talk about a certain subject you can do you can do so and in some spaces i've heard that it was really hard if not impossible to kind of you know <laughs> come back with a an answer or a different way of thinking from the professor or a parent or a naughty and i guess it has to start at home at some point i don't know i, I remember talking about foreign politics with my parents when i was a teenager one asking questions to maybe relating to some politician ideology and he never said you're dumb or you're wrong and he kind of gave me this maybe path of just trying to understand and not to be you know have doubts obviously on different things and I wonder if me being in a 
in a workplace, I will be, oh, sir, I understand, but this is wrong because your way of thinking is not really, uh, it's not smart, but obviously I will have to put it differently. And I want you to kind of give mm. me a way if it was different. I'm mm. a woman. You know, I'm from whatever background and I'm being taught and I've been taught forever that I shouldn't speak up. And I see some crazy things mm. happening at work and I have just to stand there and just yeah. not even relax, but just really not deal with it any, anyway. Yeah, you're very correct in terms of that culture. It's It's one of the things holding us back, I would say that we're brought up to be quiet. You know, the respect for elders translates to don't question them because they're older, they're always right. And that kind of, uh, you know, thinking. Uh, I think for me, first of all, I'm grateful that my personality is just not that kind. You know, I'm the <laughs> kind of person that even from, from right through my childhood, I've, I was always questioning. My mom knew that, you know, she couldn't just tell me do this and I would do it. <laughs> You have okay. to understand why I'm doing what I'm there doing. It must make sense to me. I'm a very logical person. Even when I was married, you know, it initially caused some problems for me because my initial I went into marriage thinking that, you know, let the better argument win. It wasn't about okay. you're the man or I'm the woman. It's about what makes sense mm. for the situation. And then I had to learn that, well, sometimes it doesn't make sense, but the box stops as he's stable. So if he decides this is the way to go, you can do his prayer and hope that it turns mm. out well. You know, so that that is there culturally and it affects us. And even in the workplace as well, just like you said, you find that things are happening and people can't speak up because they're afraid, you know, of a reaction, of retaliation if they speak up. And sometimes they don't even have the voice to be able to speak up because right. they've been they've been brought up not to, it doesn't even occur to them that they can't speak up. I remember, uh, I think in the last organization I worked before I left Nigeria, there was a lady that I had to, I made it a point, you know, to actually coach her on looking at me and looking at people in the eye when she speaks, because she was constantly looking down and was never able to look up. And I felt this lady had so much potential. And I told her, if you want to go beyond, you know, just this level of being just an officer, being an individual contributor, mm. you have to be a bit more assertive. You have to mm. let your voice be heard, you know, and I actually took it on as a project to coach her and help her to be able to move beyond that. But it was a real struggle for her because she had been brought up differently. So I think in general, not to speak more specifically to the question, it's about you encouraging people. So just the same mm -hmm. way I kind of like took that lady as a project. When you notice, first of all, putting it out there that, you know, this is HR, we're, we're open and willing to listen to whatever your issues is, encouraging people to speak up. And then when you begin to hear, so a lot of times when people can speak up, you tend to hear things from the underground, from the mm. grip. So there's little bits and pieces of chatter here and there about this going on or that going on. So rather than ignoring it, because in this case, yes, I mean, nobody wants to encourage gossip, but in an atmosphere, in a culture where people are not empowered to speak up, gossip is one of the ways that you can try and find out what is going on. So, but of course you approach it differently when you hear those whispers, then you actually take on, you know, approach the people that you think, or you've been told, 
you know, have these issues to say, look, I heard this and that. I'd like to actually hear it from you, get to know what is happening, you know, and then try and encourage them to speak up about whatever the issue is. Yes, sometimes you do all that you can and people are just not willing, maybe because of past experience, the, you know, the fear retaliation, and sometimes that, that can be the case. So, I mean, when you can't do anything, your hands up and yeah. just hope for the best. But I think to a large extent, I found that encouraging people in that way and kind of like assuring them, I mean, if you can, as much as possible as well, assure them of confidentiality, mm. you know, helps to get them to open up and let you know what is going on. And then, of course, it's then up to you to do what you can with the information. And sometimes, honestly, you really can't do anything. Maybe there are sensitivities involved, there are personalities involved that are untouchable, so to say, you know, but at least you tried. I mean, I guess I'll have to ask for you, you, if you, when you dealt with something that couldn't be changed and, and the person, for example, was supposed to stay in that position of power or influence at some point, and let me assume it was more like a bully than someone who was being bullied, how do you deal with that as an HR person? Honestly, there's not much you can do. I mean, HR is an advisory function. Our role basically mm. is to advise either the employee or the employer to say, you know, this and this is the law, this and this are the best practices. This is what we think should happen in this situation or circumstance. But if they say, no, either party could be the employee, could be the employer. If someone says, I'm sorry, mm. I mean, I don't agree, I'm not going to do it this way. The important thing is to ensure that, you know, as much as possible, you've documented, you know, your own stand and your own advice so that if anything happens and maybe there is a legal case or something, you can at least say, look, I did my part, you know, mm. and then the other person needs to accept responsibility for you know, whatever the fallout is from that action. Other than that, there's really nothing you can do. I mean, if it is something really, really bad that, you know, is probably completely against your personal principles, some people you have, have to known to, yeah, to just step aside and maybe mm. leave that job or leave that organization because it's, they can't, you know, just stay within mm. that environment with that situation happening. So it's, uh, but honestly, uh, there's only so much you can do. Our role is advisory. Well, that's crazy. I mean, it's it's good and and at the same time it's sad because it feels like I mean for me you will paid me to be in an HR position because it's one of those places where you like either cra go crazy or go crazy. Usually you go crazy. So <laughs> I wanted to be sane. Um, but let me let me take you a little bit to the positive spin uh, for a moment and ask you about Nigeria. Because obviously I've had, you know, Nigerians on the pod and it's always fun because you guys are a lot, a bunch of people on the African continent and outside of the continent. And I would like to know, what is Nigeria for you? What is your version of Nigeria that you saw when you grew up and how it's changing? And even me working on a tech space for the last three, four years, it feels like it's changing every day. So <laughs> we'll assume you've seen it all, seen a lot at least. So give us a glimpse of Niger people and Niger the country? I think the first thing that you, that strikes you about any Nigerian is their warmth. Nigerians are warm people. Oh. They're, you know, they're, they're open, you know, they're very hospitable. Anyone who visits Nigeria, that's the first thing that they talk about and they notice. 
Um, again, also, yeah, that African thing about, you know, caring for each other, the family-like collaborative mm -hmm. kind of uh, structure whereby it's like we say that it takes a village to raise a child. That is so true about Nigerians. Mm -hmm. Everybody, I mean, sometimes it can even be to the other extreme, but people are interested in other people's business. Not, not, <laughs> okay, yeah, not always be. for, you know, negative or malicious <laughs> reasons, but just because they're concerned. Okay. You know, they see something mm. going on that they feel like, oh, no, this shouldn't happen. And when mm. bad things happen, people, you know, they gather around you, they, they make themselves available to support you. When good things happen, they're also more than willing to rejoice with you. I mean, okay, Nigerians yeah. will throw a party in a heartbeat. <laughs> That is another thing about them. We, I mean, we're very social people. Yeah, we that's for throw, sure. Oh, we will throw a party in a heartbeat. We will throw a party to celebrate the party with you. <laughs> you guys are the best. <laughs> that's a good one. Just celebrate the party. Yeah. Yes, I mean, so yes, that's that's the way of saying things. You should you should try Burundian way of doing things. It's like same same okay it's, yeah so it must be drink for days thing, then yeah <laughs> absolutely oh wow so be, because for me the, the version of nigeria that i had and that i've had for years it's the, this oil country and the second will be corruption and the third now is afrobeat so now it's moving from afrobeat you know <laughs> oil and uh, country but i wonder if all the cliches, for example, about the country have changed, or it's just plain and simply a transformation that is happening in different spaces, obviously. I think some of the cliches have, they have a basis. Not I think mm -hmm. I know, they have a basis. <laughs> but like we were saying about generalizations, it doesn't apply to 100% of the population. Mm, Unfortunately, true. because the bad things get, I mean, bad news travels faster than good news generally Absolutely. anywhere in the world. So you find that that becomes amplified and then that's all people yeah. hear and they think, oh, Nigeria is more corrupt. Yeah. Nigeria. You guys are all the yes. same. Yes, which, which is not true. And I mean, every country has its bad people. Even here in Canada, since I've been here, I mean, I don't, I don't want to know, I don't want to count how many numbers are blocked. Because you get all the spam calls that are calling you about how your card is being used on Amazon. There's a delivery you're expecting you need to pay. And you're like, what is going on? I mean, bad people exist everywhere. But yeah, we have yeah, yeah. maybe a bit more than a fair share of corruption. Expertise in that space. Yeah, you know, and people would say, yeah, try to find excuses. Poverty level is high. So maybe that explains mm. part of it. But honestly, I'm not even sure about that anymore because the corruption is so endemic that even those that you believe, you know, are not poor are still engaging in some form of it or the other. So I don't know if poverty is an explanation, but yeah, we do have a fair share of it. Mm. There's no doubt about that. Afrobeats, oh yes, absolutely. Afrobeats and Nollywood. And Nollywood, yes, that's true. Have yeah. made a name for us. I mean, yeah. if you go on Netflix, go on Amazon Prime, Nigerian sure. movies are all over. I think we probably get like one a week being released, if not more <laughs> than that. Music, I was in Iceland and honestly, oh, yeah. oh, yes. my hotel was opposite a nightclub. And one night I was awakened by music. I'm like, that sounds familiar. 
it was David this is burner boy <laughs> it was david doe i'm like david doe i'm in iceland that was when i knew that you had gone that's amazing. yeah exactly you know? so, oh man that's so uh, true our music, and you cannot blame anyone our music is beautiful the reading oh, yeah. the beats i mean what my own favorite it, majority of my Spotify playlist is Afrobeats. It's, it's, yes. it's, you know, so yeah, uh, what was the third thing you raised? So the corruption? Yeah, it was corruption, uh, old country, obviously the shells and the whole, uh, you know, it's all about basically where you have your money in the country. For me, I, again, mm. me reading Forbes or me reading, yeah. you know, corporations and lots of billionaires in that space, obviously, because... Mm. Oh, yeah, the oil. Crazy. Definitely. I mean, oil has been both a blessing and a curse for us. Yeah. You mm. know, uh, a, a curse in the sense that because we had a lot of it and we're making money from it, we kind of mm. like forgot about every other thing. So we've become, to a large extent, a money economy. And now that things are not going so well, obviously, it's impacting us negatively. And I mean, it's never a good idea to have a single source of income, just like we encourage multiple income streams. So, yeah, that has been an issue. But I think in terms of the changes in Nigeria over the years, um, it's been both good and bad. Yes, a lot of good things have happened. We've grown. I mean, we've been exposed to the world. Technology has made, mm-hmm. you know, quite a few changes to come. And COVID made us adapt, I mean, in a lot of ways as well. Mm-hmm. But that same exposure has also brought, you know, exposure to, I mean, it has globalized uh, some of yeah. the scams, for example. So people are now able to, you know, do whatever scams that they were doing now on a global scale rather than on a local, mm-hmm. you know. And, um, but... I think by and large, Nigerians are resilient people. I mean, the mm. fact that with everything that's going on, how bad things have become, you know, we're hoping and praying that, you know, with the coming election that we might just find mm. our way back with, uh, you know, the right leadership if we're able to get them actually elected. You know, so mm. it's, um, there, there's good and bad of it. There's yeah. a lot of things that have evolved, but... Nigerians are resilient. I think that's that's just it. Because ordinarily, a lot of the things we've gone through, I think a lot of other smaller countries, less resilient people would have collapsed under the weight of it. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I I feel like it's funny. I mean, I don't know why I'm laughing. It's not laughable. It's because we have so many incidents or wars on the continent that even reading about you guys, we forget that you you are dealing with Boko Haram. You are you have been dealing with it for at least ten years, and I'm being gentle with that. Mm. Uh, and it's not the, just in the north anymore. I mean, the insecurity is all over. It's crazy. So it had to affect every area of you know education. I mean, I grew up in a conflict uh, place, so I know that education uh, is really a part of oh, man. You like. Kids are not going to school, so tomorrow they will not be able, hypothetically, uh, yeah. to to learn, to read, to do this and that. And I wonder for you if seeing it from where you are as a professional, as a mother, to say, hey, what's happening? What are you seeing in the next 10 years? Hopefully Bukharan will be gone and lost, but you know. What would happen in the next 10 years is really a function, I think, very strongly of what happens 
this February and I think March or April when we go to the polls and elect mm-hmm. the next set of leaders because things have gotten to a head. And if we do not get someone who is willing and able, you know, to make drastic changes that would change the trajectory of things from down to up, it it, it would be a disaster. So it's it's very difficult for me to to make a prediction. Now, unless one is going to make a prediction of scenario A, if we get a good leader, scenario B, if we don't. But I'll just, I think I'll just like to say, you know, just fingers praying and hoping that these elections, you know, turns out the right leadership. Because if it doesn't, it's it's not going to be funny. It's on the crossroads of a lot of things. Or oh, they can send you Kagame from Rwanda. Who knows? <laughs> you may turn one or two things around. Um, <laughs> let me take you back a little bit to... Um, to where you just saw, I mean, we just spoke about innovation and creativity. And I want to ask you about how do you become even a creative person in your HR space? In a tech space, I will understand. You guys have the pace tag and the flutter waves and everything. And I believe I'm, I could assume that being an employee in those spaces is different from being one in at MTN, for example newer thinking, American way of, you know, doing business or at least adapting in a, on the continent. Uh, I don't know if you work with them, if you work for them at some point, but I wonder if for you, what HR will look like in a Niger space, in a startup space as, as well. I'm saying this because they've been through a lot of things for the mm-hmm. <laughs> wave lately yeah. and, you know, maybe they needed your <laughs> feedback. Yeah, HR, HR is very culture dependent, shall I say. I mean, yes, HR can help to shape the culture, but by and large, culture is dictated and flows from leadership. And it's what leadership, you know, does that sets the pace for a lot of what HR can do. Because as I said, we're in an advisory capacity. So if leadership is not flowing with us, we can't swim against the tide. So that being said, in in a startup cultural organization in Nigeria. I think a lot of them, uh, when they start up, because they get a significant amount of funding from external, you know, venture capitalists and organizations Mm -hmm. from outside the country, I think that to some extent helps them to be a bit more mindful of doing things properly. So um, they may not actually have a full-fledged HR function, depending on you know, what level they're at and how they start. Obviously, as they grow, they probably need to have, even if it's just one person, you know, looking after HR. Or sometimes people just have like a consultant that they go to when they have any HR issues. But yeah, it's for, I think the tech, the startup space, and most of them are tech really or tech enabled, Mm. might not be a typical one to look at because I think to a large extent they are influenced by external non-Nigerian um, factors because they have, you know, to try and comply with some of the conditions of whatever funding or, you know, investments that they've received and try and do things a particular way. For organizations in general, um, first of all, the labor laws is, is a major differentiating factor across countries. 
and you find that in Nigeria, yeah, we do have some labor laws. I find in my experience now living in Canada that a lot of the laws in Nigeria are not as employee-friendly fo- employee as, I mean, what you have in Canada. Canada is a lot more employee-friendly. The employer has to be really careful how they handle employees, you know, if they don't want you know, to get um, a court case thrown at them. But even with the laws that we have in Nigeria, because, yes, things are getting better. I think the industrial courts are being empowered and all that, but justice still grinds a bit more slowly than it should. So sometimes people are just, you know, they just can't deal with going through the mm. length of time and the trouble of actually taking a case to court and trying to get, you know, justice for themselves. Mm. But for those who do, I mean, there are instances where people have gotten judgment 10 years after and you're like, gosh, wow. Wow. I mean, oh, wow. whatever money was awarded has lost value. The person's mm. life has gone in God knows what direction because, I mean, 10 years is a long time. Mm. We've had a few cases where judgment has been faster, you know, for various reasons. But I think in general, on the average, justice still grinds slowly. And um, sometimes when people look at it, it's not worth the effort or the money, you know, that they'd have to put into it. So, yeah, um, I think that that's kind of like, you know, the, the space in which HR operates within Nigeria. I'm in France. I uh, I remember the first year. I knew that before because, I I mean, I knew that before, but experience it was, was really interesting. So I'm at school. We're having lunch and people are talking about their personal life. It's like my first or second week of, of school. That was 15 years ago. And people were talking about everything, and French people, especially French women, they talk about a lot, a lot of things, and a lot, and really volume 100. And at some point, somebody asked me something, and I said, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I believe in God. So, And then I saw the faces of people. I was like, what? I was like, no, but you can't say that. So basically, it's really forbidden to talk about your faith. I didn't even say Jesus, <laughs> uh, your workplace. And... I go to church. Sometimes I talk with friends who work in the HR department and really big corporations here. And it's been a struggle for them at some point, especially for the last three years here. If you understand, if you know the history of France, you could understand why there is a, a deep separation between the, the you know church and state. But knowing Nigerian people, knowing I mean, I know lots of pastors from Nigeria. So th- those are the things I forgot to, t- to mention as well. I was like, I may not know much about Nollywood, but I know about the pastors. And <laughs> and I wonder how you, for you guys, faith and workspace really relate to, you know, to everything you do. Because for me, if you ask me, who are you? I'll say first, I'm a child of God. And then I'll take the other identities, whatever, uh, afterwards. Yeah, so in Nigeria, it's actually not a problem. In fact, no, let me let me rephrase. In Nigeria, it's a problem. Not a problem because you can't talk about it, but a problem because we have taken religion to the other extreme. In the uh, Western world, I mean, so for example, Canada, where I'm at, it's not something that you, know, you talk about. Yes, the Charter of Human Rights protects your right to you know, believe whatever you can mm. to your religious views. But it's not something that you put out there. In the mm-hmm. course of conversation, if it comes up, like, I mean, with my coworkers, 
there have been times when you know it's just the conversation just kind of like went in mm-hmm. that direction or maybe no we're talking about something else but because it's something that my faith has helped me to do i could just say oh, you know i mean god has helped me to do this but it's just something casual that happens along the way it's not something that i deliberately try to put out there because i'm mm. conscious of the fact that you know different people mm. have different beliefs and i don't want to be seen to be imposing mine on anybody and mm. so but if you ask me i'm not going to deny it this is who i am Absolutely. just like you said first and foremost you know i believe that god is the one that has brought me this far and will take me the rest of the way but i'm not going to make it up and send up and front mm. you know of the first thing that i say to you or anything like that now let's go back to nigeria i mean you have a situation where people start a meeting it's, it's got to start with an opening prayer they have to close with an opening prayer you go to the passport office to get your passport the whoever is coordinating says all of you must join him in a 15 minute prayer no. session before <laughs> they can even start work and then the same people after they finish the prayer session and the praise session you go into their office and they're asking you for something to grease oh, the movement no. of the fire and you begin to wonder you know these things don't oh, there's a misalignment okay. so that's why i said it's a problem hmm. so we've we've turned it you know made religion just just the just the surface practice of it it actually doesn't mean a thing we're just a very religious people who just believe that you know we have to do this but it, you can't see the impact as much as you should in actual hmm. in their actual lives and the way they live their lives i mean it's a common Thing that people say that you know they are with the number of churches and so-called believers that we have in Nigeria, that it's we shouldn't be having a lot of the problems we're having in terms of corruption. You know, if if people were actually leaving these beliefs that they espouse, mm. so yeah, that's um that's the unfortunate reality. But they, I I want to say that there are quite a few people, at least I know people personally who try to live their lives right, who try to, you know, do the right things the way they believe that Jesus wants them to and all that. But unfortunately, it's, uh, we don't have that critical mass. Wow. And how do you deal with Islam or any other religion? Obviously, Islam is the the next big religion, quote unquote. Uh, How do you guys cohabitate, I guess, together? in a workspace yeah, we've um, we've learned to live harmoniously we don't really ha- i mean other than the extremists maybe like the mm-hmm. Boko Haram yeah. and Co, we don't actually in the workplace in day-to-day life people i mean live harmoniously when when it's time for like the layer as we call it which is the time when they kill the ram <laughs> you find lots and lots of christians going to their Muslim friends' places, you know, to eat, to join them okay. in the celebrations. People, they sh- when they cut the meat and they're sharing it, I mean, yep. they send to their friends who are Christians as well. I mean, we go for each other's celebrations, marriages, <laughs> you know, birthday parties. So I think we, we don't have a problem with the regular average person mm. in terms of cohabiting harmoniously. It's only those who have... You know those extremist views and that's typically on the muslim side even the extremist christians those you would call extremist christians they don't have an issue living 
you know, mm. harmonious with it, um, the Muslims. It's usually the Muslims because of this jihadist, so the extremist people who have the jihadist mentality that could have a problem. All right. So I'll have to take you a little bit because you're, you're I mean, <laughs> for people who have, don't know you yet, they should look at your LinkedIn. I was scared to even connect with you because I was like, you're the typical Nigerian. At some point I was waiting for PhD, MD and NG something because <laughs> I was like, I was so lost. <laughs> it's like you, you do have an MBA. That's for sure. Let me start there. So you went to Lagos Business School and obviously you learned something. Uh, why am I saying this? Is because sometimes we were quick, and I I did a finance. I have a finance background, so I know I was kind of quick to say, "Oh, I want to do an MBA now, here and there." And I want to say that maybe nowadays I'm not as keen to do the MBAs when I get to see how things are changing quickly in terms of values in in society. And I could say maybe in ten years, I don't know, maybe in two years, but at least not now. And I wonder what for you, what you learned back then at like uh, Lagos Business School. And I would like to, to this is a really broad question, <laughs> for you to help us to define what leadership is for you. Okay, yeah, this is really broad. But first of all, yeah. uh, slight correction. I actually did my MBA at Cranfield University. Sorry. Yes, that, no, that's all right. My Lagos Business School program was just an executive program, what we oh, call okay. the Advanced Management Program. That's what I did at LBS. And then I had my MBA at Cranfield in the UK. Uh, yeah. Um, so See, you have all, so many titles I got lost. I told you. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I think Nigerians in general, we are very keen on education mm-hmm. and, you know, certifying that education, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. So, yes, we find lots of people. And, of course, when we've put in the time and the work, I mean, you got <laughs> to know it. We're going to put all those letters <laughs> yes. after our name, you know. I mean, uh, good call. I, I paid for it and <laughs> I did the work. So, but, yeah, um, back to the actual question. Mm-hmm. Leadership for me is about helping to guide the people that you're supposedly leading. But more importantly, I consider leadership to not necessarily be just situated with the person at the top. Mm. Everybody at every level can lead. I remember a few years ago, I did a program that's called 360 Degree Leadership by John Maxwell. Mm, Uh, This was quite a few years ago. And, um, while I was kind of like aware of the fact that, you know, each person can lead, that program really helped me to understand that truly at every level you can lead. And not only can you lead at every level, you can lead people, you know, 360 degrees around you, up, down, and across. So whether I'm a janitor, I can lead. And even when I'm a janitor, I cannot just lead other janitors, I can also lead the supervisor of the janitors, as well as I can lead, I don't know who else is below a janitor in the organization, mm-hmm. you know, but I can lead 360 degrees. So really for me, that's those are the two things about leadership. It's that we must recognize that it can be done at any level and we can do it, you know, in a 360 degree way. And what does leadership entail, you know, to answer your question more specifically, it's about helping people you know, to, for me, that's my personal philosophy, helping people to 
be able to achieve, you know, the highest goals that they, they that they can aspire to, because they've got to be, they've got to aspire to which you can't force. You can take a camel to the water, but you can't force them to drink. It's about your ability to help people first of all to dig deep and see those latent things they have within themselves, helping them to be able to draw it out and figure out how to maximize those talents, those skills, those experiences, whatever it is. And then showing them kind of like the way, either through your own personal you know, story or other people that you can point to, that you can refer to, showing them and helping them to be able to find their way into that, you know, highest level of expression, yeah. so to say. That for me is what leadership is about. So it's not a telling, it's a helping, it's a showing, it's a leading, you know, by mm -hmm. the hand, holding someone's hand and, you know, let's go together on this journey. Let me show you how I got here, mm -hmm. you know, and then talking about 360 degree leadership, it's about influence as well. So while the janitor may not be able to, I mean, if he's leading the supervisor, is not going to be telling him how to become a janitor <laughs> again, you know, but he can help him see things from a perspective that he probably is not seeing it because he's kind of like at this higher level and he's not quite, you know, able to look to see that far down. And it can help him to understand, you know, how to relate with people at this other level, how to empathize with them, how to see what their needs are. So your ability to do that at a lower level for someone above you is still leadership because you're helping them to become a better leader by the perspectives and the things that you're sharing with them. And it's this is, um, I was going to say a silly question, but maybe not. I, I would like to hear it from you. I had an interview with a friend who works at the African Union, and basically she was telling me that she wanted to take a year off uh, from her work to kind of go into Africa, travel, sit to people. Long story short, she was just basically telling me, I want to see real people now because she's interacting with politicians all day, every day. She may have a driver. She may have really nice good things in Addis Ababa at the moment. And she said, but at some point you have conversation and you totally forget that, you know, maybe 90% of the, the continent are living a different differently. And I would like to kind of mirror that with uh, even a story of mine where my, my father used to, to manage a bank in Burundi. And I remember sometimes you will kind of go to see him or see some colleagues at work and you will hear people talk about him as if he is this huge guy. Obviously he was the managing director, but still a human being at some point. And and I wonder what it's like, you were talking about the janitor, you obviously want to push the janitor to kind of look into something greater for him. And I wonder how it's, you can advise MDs and CEOs to kind of go down as well, you know, to go and see to people they're working for or serving at some point. And how do you, is that leadership? Can you define that as leadership or just management? I don't know, you know what I mean? Like, because at some point, not everybody's driving a, a four by four in the city with a driver and with an AC there, but it is nice to kind of have this relationship with your employees, with people you work with every day for at least five to 10 years. How would you advise that in your position? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think it's practical to expect that the CEO of 
a 900, 1000 employee organization would be able to have a relationship or even know who the janitor is in his organization. And that's where you talk about management and leadership. I mean, the management comes in there because they're two different things. Leadership sets the tone, the high-level tone at the top, mm. but they get a lot of the inputs, you know, for execution and for refining, you know, what they're doing through, through the line. So the managers mm. at the various levels are the ones, so we're talking about the janitor for, as an example. Those janitors, the supervisor of the janitors or the manager, whatever you want to call him or her, deals with the people just below them. They get that information, they get, you know, that perspective and they filter it up, you know, to the next level and it goes from the next level to the next to the next until it gets to the CEO or the board or the management team, whoever is looking at uh, that information. So it's, um, I think what is important is, first of all, the, the tone is set from the top leadership that everybody is valued. So that as that information is cascaded, each level of leadership, stroke management, you know, reflects that in the way that they interact with the people that are closest to them, reporting to them. And that way, even though the CEO is not dealing with the janitor, the janitor feels valued because the CEO has set the tone and the successive levels of leadership and management are leaving out that same message that the CEO has portrayed. If the CEO, on the other hand, you know, is not interested in listening to, so when the janitor, when maybe say this chief operations officer, the CEO comes to say, look, you know, I got this information from the manager of the supervisor of the janitors because it's filtered up to him. And he says X, Y, Z, and the CEO is like, you know, I, I don't even want to hear, yes, yeah. I mean, don't even talk about that. Who are they? Who are the janitors? Of course, when he gets that, the CEO is going to filter that back to say, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. We don't think this feedback is important. So before you know it, that information cascades down. So even though, so the janitor then begins, gets the message that, hey, you, you don't matter in this organization. So that's why I said it has to start from the top. So it's whatever tone the top management sets that gets filtered down. If it's positive, it gets filtered down. If it's negative, you know, the negativity also goes down. So, yeah. But of course, if you're in a small organization, if you're in an organization of maybe 50 or 100 people, it's not impossible mm -hmm, that yeah. the CEO, you know, at least knows, even if it's just by face, that, oh, Umi is mm. here, she's, you know, the, the night cleaner. Um, Alex is here, she's the supervisor of the night cleaners. You know, he may not mm. interact with them as in every single day, but it's, it's likely that he would at least recognize them. So it's a function of the size of the organization. But irrespective of the size, the message, you know, that is passed down, it's important. Even if you're not relating with them directly, they can still know how you feel about them. And let me take you to the women's side. You keep hearing women empowerment, women this and this and that. I do not believe in the glass ceiling stuff because I am more than that. But let me talk about the leadership thing because we like to hear that women help other women. And my position on that, I'm like, I'm not sure because if it were so, they will have more women in C position, C level uh, position. 
women interacting with women sometimes is tough. So how how basically I'm not calling every woman to play golf or to drink beer and and to play poker with men in order to succeed. But how can we roll in that space in a healthier way? Because as you said, there are some informations that go around at work. You may hear this on the supervisor, another thing on this, but you, yeah, it's not really fruitful sometimes. How can we help women grow? Yes, I agree with you that there is, I don't believe in the glass ceiling either. I believe that each person, you know, has the power within them to, by the help of God, make their own destiny. However, there is no doubt that women have a few things that, you know, could count as hindrances or stumbling blocks along the way, simply by virtue of the fact that, you know, the some of the functions that they have to do as women, as if they choose to follow, you know, the path of marriage, childbearing, child rearing, those things, you know, it's it can be difficult to manage them, you know, concurrently with a high-flying career. A lot of the time, something has to give. It's either you then have to leave the children in the hands of caregivers, so and then you your career flourishes. But for you to actually say you're devoting enough time to that, and then also it can be a struggle. Thankfully, in recent years, a lot of men are helping out, but I think I'm one of those who believe that just by virtue of the nature of women and men, you know, women tend to have a lot more responsibility in that regard than than men do or could. So in terms of, I agree that a lot of times, I mean, the relationship between women could be a bit tenuous. And I think that... <laughs> Some of that is because there are so few opportunities for us that in order for me to get mine, I feel like I have to push the other woman away because if there's only room for one woman, then if I'm helping my fellow woman, it means I might not get it. So oh, I better do my own, you know, focus on myself mm. and quote and unquote be selfish so that I can get it. And then when I get there, okay, I'll think about you and then we'll see how we can get you there when something opens up. So I think that's what sometimes leads to that. So the solution to that is probably that, yes, I mean, if there are more opportunities for women, but I'm also very reluctant to, I don't push the agenda of, you know, just giving things to women just on the basis of their gender. I don't believe there you in go. that. Yeah, thank I, you. I am a, an advocate of merit in everything. Mm. You know, if you merit this, if you've done the work, mm. you put in the time. If you read any of my LinkedIn posts, one of the key themes I always talk about is putting in the work, putting in the time. I do not believe that there is any shortcut to putting in the work and the time. If you have done that, then let the best person win. Mm. But there are quite a number of situations where you have two, three, maybe more best people for one position. So what yeah. do you do? This is where then 
the other things come in, the playing the poker, the playing the golf, the playing the that. And that those are some of the things that then become a what's it a quote unquote disadvantage for women because maybe she has to go home to, you know, ensure the kids have done their homework or maybe take them for you know, soccer lessons or swimming lessons or whatever. So she doesn't have the time in the evening to go play golf or to go, you know, have a drink and all that. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, it's, I think that um, what women can or should strive for is, you know, defining their seasons of life. I am not going to... In, the, in your early, say, 20, no, not early 20s, but maybe late 20s, early 30s, if you've decided that you want to have, you know, a marriage and rear children, raise children, then just accept that your career is not going to fly very high during that period. That's a season where you're focusing more on the children. When that season passes and the children are, you know, doing whatever, I don't believe that it is too late at any point in time to get back into that high flying. Yes, it may feel like, oh, you know, I'm 40, for example, and I'm now competing with 25-year-olds, whether male or female, because, you know, I've just finished my season of focusing on my children. And now it looks like, you know, I feel funny because I'm 40 and I'm competing with a 25-year-old. But mm-hmm. I don't like, I don't let age become a barrier in my mind. I don't accept the fact, the notion that, oh, because I'm 40 means that I cannot be start life off as a manager, you know? So maybe before I, I took, while I was in that other season of child caring, I, I, I couldn't get up to managerial level because I just, you know, didn't, couldn't put in the effort that was needed to get there. So now that I'm 40, I now have the time. It doesn't matter, I'll be a manager at 40. I mean, mm-hmm. All things being equal, I have maybe another 25, 30 years still to go. We'll get where we need to get to. <laughs> there you go. It, it doesn't bother me that, you know, I'm starting this and unquote late. So I think mm. for me, that's the, that's my message to women that, you know, don't try to, because when you lose those years with your children, there's nothing you can do to recover them, you know. But when you're done with that, and that, that is, of course, if you choose that, but if you don't choose that, of course. That, I mean, you need to put in go the straight. time, go for <laughs> yeah. the drinks, go for the golf, mm. do whatever you need to do. Don't expect that something should be handed to you because you're a woman. A man is not expecting that it should be handed to him because he's a man. He will go and play golf. He will go for the drinks. He would have the after meeting or before meeting mm. meeting to <laughs> cash out whatever needs to be done. You do the same. You know, getting these opportunities is not about gender. It's about who is doing the work. So if you do it and you don't get it because you're a woman, that's a different conversation. And then we can, you know, begin to do whatever advocacy and all that we need to do for that. But first of all, please do the work, put in the time. You know, don't start getting litigious. I mean, don't start getting, you know, um, trying to make a case for something when you haven't put in the time or the work. I wouldn't stand behind you in that. So I think that that's uh, my approach to it. That's great. And do you think we women need to find a place where they can maybe start their different communities? If you don't play golf or don't smoke cigars, maybe if you're a mother and you have young kids, 
maybe do like a playground, play stuff, play date at home and, oh, you know, come here and then we'll enjoy the, can, can't we do something? I'm not a mother yet, so I maybe um, a bit straightforward there, but I'm like, can't we find solutions for women? Like if you work at Google, if you work at Facebook, where you just say, hey, now I have six months off or six months I work part-time and I want to interact with other mothers and hence interacting with more women, helping more women. Yeah, but then we're limiting the circle because again, remember we said there are so few women up True. there anyway. So if we're now doing activities that is limited to other mothers, how many of them yeah. are in a position to, you are probably all in the same situation. You know? <laughs> yeah. But we want to interact with people who are able to help you out. And that's why I said, you know, don't feel bad if for that season you just can't do this because you cannot take your kids to the bar to have drinks with the boys. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you do? Just accept that this is the season of your life you're in. Mm. When you're done with that season, then do everything you can. Go all in. Go all in. Exactly. Wow. Okay. So because you write and obviously with many titles that you have, I didn't even talk, it's an hour, I didn't even talk about the fact you studied chemical engineering, but for those who don't know you, they should buy the book. Tell us why you wrote the book first. And, you know, obviously it's uh, it's called Incredible Courage for people, for those who are lost. And I'll link that on uh, on the notes. And yeah, share just the story of, of it all. Just uh... Yeah, so Incredible Courage is a book I wrote to chronicle my journey when I became a widow. Um, it wasn't so much about widowhood as it was about letting people know that you can bounce back from whatever life throws at you. In my case, at that time, it was widowhood, but it could be anything else. It could be a job loss. It could be the loss of some other important person in your life. It could be so many other different things. But when life throws lemons, throws lemons at you, what do you do? Um, I... A lot of people that knew me and knew what happened, you know, with my journey of widowhood and, you know, all the different issues that I had with my late husband's family, business, work, and, you know, struggling to put the kids through school and all that, doing my own MBA in the midst of all that, you know, just felt that, look, you, you've bounced back so well, you, you've demonstrated so much courage in this process that we think that you know you should share the story to encourage other people because there's so many people who don't even think that this is possible and for those who think it's possible they're not even sure you know how they can raise their head up so i i mean eventually i decided okay you know um i as we said i'm a person of faith and everything we pass through has a purpose and um Part of that purpose is to help other people. You know, um, Bible talks about helping others with the same comfort that you have been comforted. So that was kind of like my rationale for going into it. So the book is not so much, it's a motivational book, but it's not really motivating you by telling you, you know, do ABC. It's really motivating you by sharing how I lived my life, the things that I did. And for you to see that, This woman went through this and yet she did. I started my MBA two weeks after my late husband passed. I mean, my family was like, you know, just write to the school and tell them to give you a deferral. But I said to them, 
I think I actually need this as something to help me retain my sanity. I didn't want to be, because I think a lot of the time, sometimes, and of course, we're all different. But for me, sitting down, not doing anything, being idle, quote and unquote, was going to create more problems for me than being busy. You know, so I, I, I decided that having that to do, having that challenge of the MBA, because ordinarily without mm. that kind of a loss, an MBA is a challenging, you know, is a daunting thing to take I mean, on. Yeah. So, but yeah. I felt that it would help me retain my sanity. And actually, that's what it did. When I was doing the first year anniversary, and that was the first time my classmates were hearing about my loss, they were like, are you for real? You mean that you've been struggling with this this entire year? They could not believe it because it didn't show in my work or anything. Yes, of course, when I'm in my room, sometimes, you know, you break down, you're crying, you're thinking, you know, why is my life like this? But I dust myself up, clean my eyes, and I go out there and I do what I need to do. So yeah, it's that's really what the, the book was about, and um, yeah, it's called Incredible Courage. It's available on Amazon uh, in different countries. And I, and I want to say that this is it's it's more than a divine connection because it's funny when I decided to do the and this podcast two years ago, two three years ago, is because I knew that you know my environment and you resilient women, strong women. And I didn't want to keep this, hearing the same about the same women, Oprah and Michelle Obama and this and this. I'm like, we have like a bunch of top five in the US. And I wanted to add other voices because because life, I mean, when you live in Africa in general, or when you live in general, they just say that you, you, you tend to live a life that is so different from what we get to see on TV every day. And yeah, thanks for, thanks for writing the book. I'm waiting for that actually to come on my Amazon. For those people who don't like Amazon, it's okay. Uh, that's how I get my books. And yeah, my my last question, I guess, I'll have to ask you this: a serious one, and then a, a Niger related to kind of let you go on with your life. A serious one will say: How would you encourage women to coach or to mentor other women? As you said, you did so before, and um, obviously, it's not easy to do so on Facetime or on Zoom calls. But in your environment, how would you advise the the younger kids or the new generation to come along and ask for mentors and for women who may have seen something in in employees or friends or you know kids and to, to call them and be like, hey, I would like to mentor you to be successful in this. Yeah, mentoring, honestly, I think is something that needs to be driven by the person that wants to mentor. I think women should make it known that they're available, you know, to, to mentor or to provide help in whatever way, you know. So whatever circles we find ourselves, like, I mean, for instance, I've got an HR group of Nigerian Canadians here that I'm part of, and I'm very vocal in that group. And because I'm vocal, you know, people then reach out to me to say, hey, I liked what you said about this. Would you be open to, you know, helping me on a one-on-one basis? And I, I take on as many mm-hmm. as I can, both male and female, not just women, mm-hmm. you know, and try and help them in their journey as well. So, but yeah, um, it's putting it out there to say, look, I'm available for this. I've been through this and I think that I can help you with, 
you know, your own journey from my experience and the experiences of others that I've come to know about, you know, in my own professional journey as well. So, uh, and then also to encourage other people to say, look, if you need help, reach out. Um, I think it was my last post on LinkedIn that you actually saw that made you reach out to me. And if you remember there, I said, look, do the work, put in the time, ask for help if you need it. You know, I'm very big on that as well, because honestly, um, everyone has so much they're doing. It's sometimes difficult for you to be able to pause enough to know and find out who needs help. But if someone reaches out, it's important that, you know, we make ourselves available to help. And that's what I do. I may not necessarily, you know, go around looking for people who need help. But I make it clear and known that I am available. If you need help, reach out. I'll do my very best to do what I can. So, and in terms of how do you do it? Yeah, face-to-face is ideal. But I think in this current world we live in with everything that everyone, you know, has to deal with, we've come to, you know, accept that virtual methods also work. So even though, I mean, you're in France, I'm in Canada, Just being on a video call simulates uh, to a large extent the face-to-face interaction because I can see Mm. you. I can see your expressions. I can see when you smile. Mm -hmm. I can see when you put up your hand and you can see the same from me. You know, so that's, I think that's a reasonable middle ground between actual face-to-face and, I mean, there's very little else we would do if we're actually sitting in front of each other, you know, beyond what we've done today. So video, I think, is important. Definitely not just a voice call because then, I mean, we lose all this benefit of, you know, the visual cues and everything. So I think that's a good middle ground in terms of addressing it. Of course, sometimes you can't do video, maybe internet bandwidth and some of those things. So you make do with what you can. Great. Okay. Just, um, you know, put it out there. Just do mentorship on Facebook, on Facebook, on FaceTime and on uh, Zoom calls. So my last question that is typically me asking for trouble. I have to ask this tradition of yours. I don't know if it is yours actually, because I don't know. Are you Yoruba? Are you Hausa? Are you Igbo? As Yoruba, I keep seeing, and I remember seeing that years ago, and I was so shocked. Like my heart, my Burundian me was like, "What is this? <laughs> I can't, I can't comprehend it." When you guys dance on, like I think it's like um, weddings or something. You tend to put like money. As like try to explain to me as a as a non-Nigerian, not even a freaking thing, because <laughs> it still shocks me. And I'm like, at some point I'm gonna attend a, a Niger wedding and I'm like, I should be like comfortable with that but the, for the sake of the, the, the guests. I'm like, mm, okay. <laughs> what is that? What is that blessing? <laughs> yeah, and to be honest. I'm not even sure how that became a thing, but I think also it's part of, you know, when we talked earlier, I said Nigerians are very supportive. So if you're doing something, you know, it's a wedding, it's a funeral, it's a birthday, people Mm. typically would tend to give you Mm -hmm. money, sort of help you with financial contributions to help you defray, you know, some of your expenses. That's that's just part of our culture. So I think, and this is me just postulating that, you know, that what we call, we call it spraying, came out <laughs> from that because, you know, sometimes you're not able to 
give the person so you know directly so when the person is dancing you come out and you know give them the money by spraying it on them putting it on their body on their head and then whoever collects it from them collects it and you know they go away and honestly i mean it's so ingrained and i'll tell you a funny story during covid i know this is funny but true story someone <laughs> postponed his wedding they were scheduled to wed and of course covid with all the restrictions it couldn't happen they were like okay you know what was happening there was people who just go you and maybe two or three people go to the registry, you do it, and you're done. I mean, we're married, that's the most important <laughs> yeah. thing. And this person said, he's sorry, he's not going to do that. He's going to wait for this thing to be done because he has budgeted what he's going to do with the money is going to be sprayed at his wedding. Oh, come so that's, on. that wedding must happen and it must be sprayed. Oh, my. Oh, okay, that's... <laughs> the person worried that. <laughs> So yeah, it, it, so it's it's become a thing oh, that, you know, so when you come out, when you have an event, you come out to dance, people come and they give you this money and it's it's just become part of our culture. <laughs> but I think it's part of just our willingness to give and support, you know, mm. those who are having an event or having some celebration financially. So we don't just wow. come yeah, sure. And eat and go. We actually Absolutely. You know, contribute to different. So, I mean, I think in the Western world, it would be equivalent to, and, you know, people bring in a dish or bring in a, a drink yes, you know, when they come to a, to a party. In our yes. own case, we don't do that. We just give you the money. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, uh, Burundians, we do that. We don't spray. But actually, you don't even say. You, you gather around the money and you give that person. And I don't even know if the person will know exactly the amount that Bumi gave me. You know, it's just, you know, oh, she participated. That's it. But I mean, that still shocks me. And I'm like, see, I'm still learning about Africa, <laughs> guys. It's uh, Sometimes it will be uh, a shock. But then again, and about the dish, I don't know if I'll manage to eat a lot of things when, once I'm there. But what would you recommend me if I go to Lagos now this year? Actually? Of course, it's jollof rice. What else? Because yeah. <laughs> Ghanaian friends told me, try jollof rice in Accra. It's Nigerian jollof. <laughs> Hands down. <laughs> see, see, I am uh, all the same, basically. Okay, I'll do that. I'll then. Oh yeah, I, I keep seeing things, and I'm like, I really need to go there because. Yeah, but oh, let me add to that. Actually, uh-huh. apart from Nigerian jollof, you uh-huh. must eat amala. Amala. Okay. Google and it and see what it looks like. Oh, is it gooey? Because if it is it's, gooey, it's, it's not... kind of droy. It's it's black. It's droy. It's made from yam flour. Oh, but it's 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 the latest rave now. I mean, you go to any part, even in, in the Western world, I mean, there are people who, who have made money from providing that at parties. Oh, my goodness. See, the influence that you guys are having on this world is amazing. Eating crazy stuff. But I'll try. I'll see. Because I studied uh, <laughs> cooking, French cooking. So <laughs> there are things in my mouth. I'm like... I'm super up on that. Anyway, thanks a lot for your time, Bruni, because it's 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 one of those things that I wanted to 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 talk about. As I said before, it's HR for me. It's uh, it's, it's not a dark place because people talk about financial world and say it's a dark space as well. But I would like to think that there's a light somewhere in between, and. I would like to ask for you, what do you want to do in five years? Obviously, you, you, you went to Canada. Do you plan to stay there? Are you working on personal yeah, personal projects there? Are you going through life, enjoying life? 
or winter? <laughs> I, for sure. I mean, so coming here, I've kind of like, in a large, to a large extent, restarted my career. Okay. Because I didn't come in at the same level that I was in Nigeria. So I think my primary focus, first of all, is to grow my career back and come get to that level, you know, where I believe I should be. And then subsequently, we'll find out what next. I mean, I think the, the world changes so rapidly these days. I don't want to project more than five years ahead. So the next five years is really just about growing my career, getting back to where I should be in terms of, you know, being at the peak of my HR career. And then thereafter, there are lots of other things to look at. And if the, and the government calls you, like uh, the Nigerian government calls you to, to kind of help them with whatever endeavors with the new government, would you say yes? Mm, you want to put me into trouble, Alex. To be I'm honest, um, I think I've given so many years to Nigeria already. Okay. I can see how I can grow here. Mm-hmm. I would certainly be interested in working in government here because I think that there's a lot that we can do, you know, to improve conditions, improve, you know, things for immigrants in general. You know, not okay. necessarily just Nigerians. So that is actually something that I'll be keen on, you know, getting to work in government in some form or the other, where I can have some impact on. Great. And then we'll call uh, Justin Trudeau then. We'll tell him that you're that you're ready. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. It's been a blast. And then obviously, if you want to say something to, to the world, aka to Africa, what do you want to say? Let's just keep rising, you know, don't let anything limit us. We're Africans, we have the resilient mm. spirit. We shouldn't let anything limit us. Amen to that. Thanks a lot and I hope to yeah, to see you soon, this year at least. Thanks a lot, Alex. It's been fun. I've enjoyed being on the podcast with you. Thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. <laughs>